Church, I just want to take a second here as I stand up here to tell you how grateful I am to you. Uh, this has been an, uh, an interesting transition for my family as we've moved here to New Jersey and we've uh, been out of our comfort zone a little bit away from our family and yet we're so grateful for the way that you have welcomed us, for the way that you have made us feel like family. I mean, I've heard Pastor Chris say often that the middle name of this church is community and there's no question that's true. I mean, we feel so welcome. So thank you. What a joy and a blessing it has been to be here and to serve here. And of course, as Pastor Chris is away, I just want to encourage you to pray for him. To spend time this week praying for he and his family, praying for rest, that as they uh, spend time away, that they would enjoy that time and it would be a good time for his family. So as we turn here this morning to the text, as we look back into John chapter 8, our passage begins with a really bold declaration. A declaration that is made alongside six other statements, so seven statements in total, where Jesus clearly identifies himself as God. And this is really important because last week we talked some about the validity of Scripture. Pastor Chris gave out a handout and talked about how, uh, pretty much without question, we can clarify that there was a historic person named Jesus. I mean, the records of the life of Jesus are far beyond any other historic figure, far beyond any uh, people like Plato and Muhammad and, and all of those guys. He's way more recorded. And yet, so many people would say, well, sure, there was probably a guy named Jesus, and he probably had really good intentions, and he was a great man with great thoughts. He might have even had some revolutionary teachings, but surely this Jesus was not God. Surely this Jesus would not have ever made the claim that he was divine. I mean, they try to lump him into this category with like the Martin Luther Kings and the Gandhis where these guys who made great change, who had followers, who, who were able to build up a following and create change in their societies. And yet here at the very outset of our passage, in the first verse, and then really throughout the entire gospel of John, Jesus claims to be God. He claims divinity. You see, if Martin Luther King Jr., had claimed to be God, I think we would pretty quickly have said, well, you're probably insane, and very few would have listened, and very little would have changed. I mean, if any man declares to be God, it doesn't take very long to out them. If I stood up here this morning and I said, I am God, right that moment, you could look at my wife and she would say, <laughs> she would very clearly know I have plenty of flaws and imperfections that I'm not God, she could prove it right away. And yet Jesus had 12 men with him constantly and thousands of other followers. And here he makes this bold claim that he is God. So look with me at verse 12. This is an incredibly important claim, an incredibly important piece of Jesus. If we deny his divinity, then whatever else Jesus does doesn't matter. Even his resurrection doesn't matter if he isn't divine. I mean, Lazarus was resurrected, but he wasn't God. And so it, it changes the entire narrative whether or not we believe Jesus is God. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right out of the gates here, Jesus presents kind of the first big idea. This is going to be central to the remainder of the text, so it's important that we get this. By claiming to be the light, Jesus is claiming to be God. So your first question naturally would be, how does that follow? How is claiming to be the light claiming to be God? 
So here, to get a little context, I mentioned earlier that there are seven statements throughout the book of John called the I am statements. It's where Jesus declares that he is I am. And for those who would have been his audience, those who would have been listening, they would have clearly understood that Jesus is referring and and putting himself in the category of God. We see that back in Exodus when Moses talks to God. In Exodus chapter 3, listen to this exchange. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So first, the historic context where we get to this point provides insight into what Jesus is saying. But then the setting is amazing in this context. Look at verse 20 and it says, these words he spoke in the treasury. Now this is important because during the Feast of Booths, we talked about one pretty incredible ceremony a couple of weeks ago that dealt with water. And then here is another ceremony where four torches would have been set up in this treasury. And I'm not talking about like Indiana Jones style torches or maybe the tiki torches in your neighbor's backyard uh, or maybe even like the Statue of Liberty torch. That's all the torches I could think of. (laughs) None of those compare to these torches. These were golden torches and they were at least 75 foot tall. And at the top of these torches were bowls that contained 65 liters of oil. And at the end, they would light these torches, and they would light the wicks at the end of the torch, and it would illuminate the entire temple, and it would even illuminate portions of Jerusalem. And this was a reminder of the glory of God filling the temple in Exodus chapter 40. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. You see, the glory of the Lord in Exodus shone forth from the tabernacle. And they would perform this ceremony where they would remember that the shining of God's glory in this fire, this illumination of the temple, was a sign of God with them. And here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus into this very room where this ceremony, where these torches almost certainly would have still been set up, And he proclaims, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. In other words, these torches, this celebration, what you're doing right now, it's all pointing to me. And here I stand in front of you. Jesus proclaims to all who have ears to hear, I am God. I am God. Look back at verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John makes reference to this at the very beginning of this book. So if you would just turn back a couple pages with me to John chapter 1, we'll read a couple verses together there. We're going to start in verse 1. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world, and this light is a light that brings life to the world and those who will accept it. Jesus proclaims that those who walk in this light will not be overcome by darkness. They will not walk in darkness. This doesn't mean that we'll never sin again. First John clearly says, if you say with you are without sin, then you are a liar. But what it does do is it echoes this promise that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. You will not walk in darkness. You will have the light of life, and the light overcomes the darkness. I don't know if many of you go camping. Um, I'm not a big fan of camping. I tend to think, I tend to think that if we have, uh, if we've learned how to build wonderful shelters and we've learned how to create soft, comfortable beds and we know how to keep the bugs out and we know how to have air conditioning, like for me, I, I say, why not enjoy these great gifts from God? <laughs> but some of you who, uh, who want to go have fun when you go camping, I'm not going to not camping, well, anymore at least. When you go camping, one of the important things that you probably do is you make a fire, right? And when you make a fire, your first thought is probably not, man, I really hope the darkness doesn't put my fire out. I really hope this darkness doesn't take out my fire. There may be other things that come and you don't want to take out your fire, but it works the other way around. You light the fire to put out the darkness, you light the fire so that the darkness is expelled and pushed away because the darkness itself cannot overcome the light. So first one here, by claiming to be the light, Jesus is claiming to be God. But secondly, and another key idea, is that darkness conflicts with the light. It's not hard. This is a simple analogy. Uh, for any of you have, who have teenagers or college kids or were a teenager or a college kid, you know that when they're asleep and you cut on the light, it's usually, oh man, that's too bright, right? That's the first response. When you come out of a cave or, or somewhere dark and you come right into lightness, it, it hurts. Darkness and light conflict. And yet here we're going to see that as Jesus is the light of the world, that when he comes and he talks to the Pharisees, we're going to see how they conflict. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Here are just a couple of notes about what these Pharisees are saying, because it can kind of seem weird. What, what are they talking about? First, Jewish law, and Jesus is going to hint at this in just a minute, requires two witnesses for anything to be verified and considered true. But then just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus himself had said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So they're bringing this statement of Jesus from a couple of chapters ago, and they're bringing it to him and saying, well, you taught us that if you bore witness about yourself, that it wasn't true. But if you look back at John chapter 5, Jesus has already uh, rebutted this idea. He has said, John the Baptist came as a witness. Moses, through the entire Old Testament, was a witness. Uh, even God the Father is a witness to who I am. So Jesus, rather than replaying the end of that chapter there, comes back with a little bit different answer. Verse 14 says, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Jesus, of course, knows he has come from the Father. And so therefore, being that he is coming from the Father and going back to the Father, everything that he says is always 
true. Jesus doesn't ever say anything that is false. But then he says, clearly, you don't get it. You don't know where I come from. You don't know where I'm going. You're missing it, guys. And he says it even a little deeper here in this next part. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. In verse 15, Jesus reveals kind of a second problem. So verse 14, the first problem, they don't know where he's come from. They don't know where he's going. Verse 15 says that now they're only concerned with the flesh. This is why when they look at Jesus, they can't understand. They can't get the full picture. Why? Because, yes, Jesus is fully man, but, yes, Jesus is fully God. And so when they look at Jesus and only see the man, they can't understand. They can't get it. It doesn't make sense. But then to clarify for them, he says, you don't know. But then he says, I, uh, in verse 16 and verse 18, he says, the Father sent me. So he says, you don't know, but I'm going to tell you yet again, the Father sent me. And then in verse 17, he uh, rebuts that notion that he doesn't have two people. It's him and the Father who are bearing witness. So rather here than opening their eyes, the Pharisees, rather than hearing this word from Jesus, rather than understanding, rather than having ears to hear and eyes to see, the Pharisees continue to prove Jesus true. Look at verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Where is your father? Right? Jesus has just called up his father a couple times, so where is he? I really think this is a pretty natural response. Like if somebody came into your workplace one day, Right, So the Pharisees, Jesus is coming into the temple, and they started doing things, and they started challenging everything you did. Uh, it would probably get on your nerves a little bit. You probably wouldn't take too kindly to somebody coming in and, and doing everything you were doing and, and, and taking away some of perhaps your business from your job. You might be a little annoyed. And so you might go up and say, hey, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And then when that person said, well, actually, everything you've always done for your whole life, well, all of that's wrong probably not going to take too kindly to that. So it makes sense here that they say, where is your father? Because if that person then came back to you and said, well, just go talk to my dad and he'll tell you it's true. Well, who's your dad? Why does your dad know what's right here? Don't you see Jesus just said to them, you judge according to the flesh. In the flesh, they would have looked at this and thought, well, where is your dad? Where's your father? But here's the difference between that analogy and where that analogy fails. The Pharisees should have been the most in line to see who Jesus is. They should have known the law. They should have been aware that, hey, the Messiah is here. They should have been ready and excited. And yet, they ignore it. They miss it. And why do they miss it? Because they're in darkness. They're in the darkness. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And they're walking in darkness. They can't see it. So Jesus responds to them pretty candidly in the second half of verse 19. He says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You see, the only solution to this darkness of sin is the light of Christ. To know the father, you first have to have the light of Christ, the light of life that is for all men. So verse 20 again is that great insight that uh, seen in the temple, and then it says, because it was not his time, they could not arrest him. 
So I think that line in and of itself is pretty important because what that line is saying is that even for those people who were living outside of God's will, they couldn't do anything without the Father's hand. The Father said, even though you don't know me, you can't do anything not in accord with my will. It's not Jesus' time. 21, he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. What's happening here? Jesus just said to them, you will die in your sin. I'm not sure about you, but usually when I'm having a conversation with an unbeliever, that's not my uh, go-to line. Don't normally pull that one out of my pocket and use that in my dialogue. But for some reason, it doesn't even phase the Pharisees. They don't even care that Jesus just said that. Look at their question. Where I am going, you cannot come. Remember, the second point was that darkness conflicts with the light, but I think it's just as true that darkness will not directly confront light. You see, Jesus comes and he brings light, and they ignore, and they look to the other question. And yet the crowd here being so overcome by darkness, so blind in their sin, they respond for ignorance this third time in a row. They're still not even beginning to grasp it. Warren Wearsby says this of the question, will he kill himself? They thought he was planning to kill himself. Suicide was an abhorrent thing to a Jew, for the Jews were taught to honor all life. If Jesus committed suicide, then he would go to a place of judgment, and this, they reasoned, was why they could not follow him. Do you see just how confused they were? I mean, this is almost completely upside down. They thought, hey, we're doing right. We're following all the laws. We got this, so we're going to heaven. So for him to say, well, we can't go where he's going, he must be condemning himself to hell. It doesn't make any sense. Before I dig into just how wrong the Pharisees are here, a quick aside, because I think it's important to understand this. Scripture does not teach by any means that suicide is some automatic ticket to hell. Scripture teaches instead that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover us completely. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole sins of the world. Jesus is the one who covers our sins. He has taken the full punishment necessary for our sins. He has taken the full wrath of God for those who would be saved by grace through faith. Moreover, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, even we ourselves are incapable of separating ourselves from the love of God. Therefore, even the pretense of what they're asking here is wrong. Even, even this trap that they've tried to set here, even this thought of, well, he must be going to hell, and so he must be going to kill himself, even that thought is wrong. Look at how he responds in verse 23. It's a pretty impressive response. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus is like, no, no, guys. No, you've got this all wrong. Guys, I'm not the one headed to hell. Didn't you hear me? You will die in your sin. I am the one from above. You're from below. 
You're from this world. I'm not of this world. Just in case they missed it, though, Jesus here condemns them again. Look at the first part of verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. This is what darkness does. This is what darkness does. It blinds us from the truth. In the darkness, both right and wrong look the same. You see, without light, we get to make up whatever we want. We can believe whatever we want because everything is relative because we really can't see anything at all. You see, if it's completely dark and we were outside and somebody came up and said, well, I think the grass is pink. I mean, I'm talking like can't see the hand in front of your face dark. And then another person came up and said, actually, I think the grass is blue. And then yet another person came up and said, well, really, the grass is yellow. You could go to your death believing the grass is blue, and that wouldn't make it right. And then let's say here, for instance, to tie it back to this story, a fourth person comes along, and this person has light. And this person comes along and says, hey, guys, guess what? The grass is actually green. What good news? The grass is green. This is great. And then the other three men angrily turn away and say, no, you're wrong. The grass is surely pink. The grass is surely blue. The grass is surely yellow. And you know what? Those guys who are living in the darkness can believe that all they want because they can't see the grass. Church, here in Proverbs 4.19, it says, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. You see, in the same way that the person refuses to see the grass, the Jews here refuse to see the Messiah, the light of the world, in their very midst, in their very presence. They are living in darkness. And unfortunately, just as still happens to this very day, so many of them would go to the grave in their sins. They would die in the darkness. But then look at the remainder of verse 24. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So what's the solution? Jesus provides it right here in the midst of this dialogue. Jesus is still providing what they need. Believe that Christ is indeed God incarnate. Here's the third point this morning. Believing that Jesus is Lord and God is the only way out of darkness. Believing that Jesus is Lord and God is the only way out of darkness. He says here, and this translation adds the word he to help us better understand and to help us uh, this, this talk make sense. But literally translated, it would say, uh, for unless you believe that I am, period. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Just as we said earlier, Jesus is clearly saying, for unless you believe I am God, you will die in your sins. Look at the next portion here, 25 to 27. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Throughout the book of John, I mean, already, already here, we're in chapter 8, and already so many miracles have been performed. Jesus has repeatedly claimed divinity. Even in this very con conversation, he has told them, I am God. And here their question, their response is, who are you? You can almost hear the anger a little bit. Who, who do you think you are? Who are you? 
Who are you to come in here and be arrogant and tell us that we're the ones living in darkness? I mean, what an ironic twist. These guys living in darkness are looking at the guy who has the light and saying, who do you think you are? It doesn't even make sense. It's almost comedic. Like you can imagine the, the sketch of, uh, uh, on like SNL or something where there's a group of blonde men walking together and, and they're walking towards the cliff and then somebody suddenly comes out and he can see and he says, guys, stop. And I'll, no, we know we're right. No, you can't tell us anything. And the, blind, the, the man with sight says, no, no, guys, stop. Come back this way. And the blind men reject and refuse. And of course it ends so tragically. Because the blind men just continue, and they go right off the cliff. What a tragic, tragic ending for so many who don't come to know Christ. They are so arrogant in their beliefs, so sure of themselves, that in the darkness they are entirely blind to the light of the world. Verse 27 says it pretty clearly. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, See, despite everything that was happening, despite Jesus being there on earth with them, they still don't understand. Verse 28, and this is uh, an incredible verse of what Jesus says to them. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. Jesus is really saying several things at once in this statement. You see, Jesus isn't just lifted up one time. There's the first time where Jesus is lifted up on the cross in the crucifixion. Will you believe when he's lifted up on the cross? And then he says uh, a second time he will be lifted up out of death in the resurrection to life. Will you believe when he's lifted up then? And then even a third time when he is lifted up at the right hand of the Father and every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You see, he says, you will know one day that I am Lord. When will it be? When I am lifted up. Will it be at the resurrection or the crucifixion or the exalting of Jesus as King? How long will it take? I think that's a question we have to answer. How long will it take? Again, just note, Jesus says, I am in the sentence until the Son of Man is lifted up. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. He's claiming divinity throughout this passage. I mean, in some ways, this is offensive to the Pharisees because they're in darkness. They can't see, oh, yeah, this guy really is the Son of God. And so they think he is uh, certainly a liar at best. Look with me at the completion of this conversation here in verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Remember, this he who sent me, that's God. That's the Father. So Jesus is saying, the Father sent me. He has not left me. He is with me, and I always do things that are pleasing to the Father. About six months later, in Jesus' not distant future, we will see the ultimate submission of his will to the Father. Jesus will say, not my will, but yours, because he always does what's pleasing to the Father. Let's finish with verse 30 here. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The finish of this passage almost seems a little bit taken out of the context of the rest of this chapter to contradict what Jesus said. 
Didn't Jesus just tell them that they would die in their sins? Yet it says here, many believed. But what we're going to find out later in this text is that their, their belief isn't real. It's a, it's a false belief. And what I mean by that is if we go back to this analogy of the grass outside, right? And let's say that there were uh, those three men again, and somebody comes along with this light. And when this person comes along with the light, uh, let's say they say, oh, man, the grass is green. Look, if you'll believe that the grass is green, well, guess what? It's going to make your life better. It's going to make your life easier. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring uh, good things to you if you'll just believe that the grass is green. And so, you know what you do? Oh, yeah, the grass is green. Cool. I'm in. The grass must be green. And then let's say that you came back later, or our fictional character came back later. And what happened here is that this fictional character came back, and the person who they were talking to said, well, actually, um, I think the grass is blue. What you would know is that that person who said, well, yeah, the grass must be green then, they never saw the grass at all. Why? Because if they had seen the grass in the first place, they would never go back to saying it's green. That analogy was not perfect because the person with the light certainly wouldn't declare that life is easy. Because life with Christ is obviously not. But what an eternity we have to look forward to. You see, we live in a world that is utterly blinded by the darkness. From the moment Adam sinned, darkness became the default of humanity. I have an almost two-year-old, and I love him, and uh, he is wonderful. Um, but if you know anything about almost two-year-olds, uh, we had, uh, my wife actually had the Hawkins family, um, Ryan and his wife and their children were over last night, and my almost two-year-old um, was pulling Lydia's hair, uh, Ryan's daughter, and was throwing blocks at her, um, and I think just doing all the kinds of stuff that a two-year-old does. Now, we didn't sit there and say to our two-year-old, hey, when she comes, make sure you throw blocks at her. Hey, make sure that you pull her hair, because she really like that. We didn't have to sit there and teach our two-year-old, these are the things that you do. He's a sinner. My two-year-old is born a sinner. He needs Jesus. All of us need Jesus. We need the light of the world. Paul says we are dead. And all we have is darkness. We have no light. We have no faith. We have no understanding. We have no hope. And that is why Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world. Jesus is our great hope. Jesus is our light. Jesus is our deliverance. Jesus is all that we need. For Christians, the conflict with darkness will only be temporary. Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 through 5 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Church, without the cross, we have no light. But because of the cross, we have the light of the world come dwell in our midst amongst us we have the holy spirit of god and now we become the light of the world in church we cannot we cannot sit back and live lives that don't matter you see when we find this light of the world we don't go back and say the grass is blue no we've seen that the grass is green 
What can we do other than bow and worship? What can we do other than look to our God and say how beautiful and how glorious and how majestic and how deserving of you are all that I have? Let me lay my life down in honor and worship to you. Let me make sure that I leverage all that I have. Don't let me go back. God, don't let me slide back. And then one day we will spend all of eternity in the glorious radiance of the glory of our God. Jesus is truly the light of the world. Jesus brings us hope. Church, would you pray with me this morning? Father, God, sometimes I feel so inadequate. God, when I read a text like this and I look at the Pharisees, I know that I can turn into a Pharisee. God, that I can be blinded by the darkness of my own heart. Father, help me to keep my eyes focused on your light, on your glory, on your goodness. Father, I pray that this church, this church would be overwhelmed with who you are. God, that our hearts would long for you, for your satisfaction, for your glory. God, that our hearts would enjoy you. God, that we would bow before you daily, moment by moment, knowing that it is only you, that it is only you that makes the difference. Father, there is nothing good within us. Thank you for your son. God, we love you. In your name I pray. Amen.